Hello and welcome to Three Paper Buildings Court of Protection and Community Care Podcast, hosted by me, Matthew Wyard. We've got a great episode lined up for you today. We'll start off as usual with the latest in Court of Protection and Community Care news, and then we've got our first episode with guests. I'm joined firstly by Jim Hirschman. He is, uh, I'll let him introduce himself later, but he's a specialist public law barrister at 3PB, focusing on education, health and social care disputes. And then I'm also delighted to be joined by Kevin McManaman. Kevin is a partner at Geldard's law firm, a national firm specialising in education, court protection and community care law, with a particular expertise in advising individuals in health and welfare disputes with local authorities and health bodies. I've known Kevin for a number of years. Um, it should be a great, great conversation. Um, he won't mind me telling you that before he joined Geldars, he was the head of uh, court of protection team in the Welsh office of a national law firm as well, and retains his links with Wales as a serving committee member of Copper Cymru. Going into the news section, four updates from the court of protection world over the last month. The biggest change is perhaps the change of personnel. Court of Protection Vice President Mr Justice Hayden stepped down from his role as Vice President on the 13th of February of this year. Uh, Apparently he's still hearing cases in the Court of Protection though, albeit his role as Vice President has been replaced by Mrs Justice Theus. Secondly, also on the 13th of February this year, the Office of the Public Guardian has published its refreshed Deputy Standards. In its announcement, the OPG assured practitioners that the general principles remain the same, but rather the standards themselves are now more focused. The new deputy standards will be subject to a discussion in a later episode of this podcast. The third key piece of news is the new guidance on closed hearings in the Court of Protection. It's available on Bailey or other legal research platforms under the reference 2023 England and Wales Court of Protection 6. That will be subject of discussion in the next episode of this podcast. And finally, on the 17th of February of this year, the revised certificate as to capacity to conduct proceedings was published. Uh, Therefore, practitioners need to make sure moving forward that they are using the correct version of the form. That's the latest news from the court of protection and community care sector. Now let's move on to the main part of the podcast. As I said at the start, I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague Jim Hirschman and Kevin Manaman. Um, guys, hello. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be with you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know either Kevin or Jim, um, and so you know whose voice to recognise, what I'd ask you both to do, Jim, do you want to introduce yourself and explain a bit about your background first, and then we'll hand over to Kevin to do the same. Yes, thank you, Matt. Uh, so I practice in health, social care, education and family law. I have a particular interest in public law challenges related to those areas, and I often act for or against local authorities. In terms of my background, I did a law degree, I have a master's in public law, uh, and I am just approaching uh, my fifth uh, year post call. Oh, I didn't know you had a master's in public law. Where did you do that? Uh, University College London. Um, on national security law uh, and judicial elements, constitutional theory. Oh, really? That's really interesting. Um, well, Kevin, can you compete with that? What's your What's your background? I can only try. I can only try. Um, I'm a partner at Geldards. I specialise uh, particularly in education law, with particular expertise in special educational needs, and also mental capacity law, and in particular 
personal welfare. I've been practicing for over 15 years now, unfortunately. Um, I've practiced at a number of education firms and I've also previously headed up a court of protection department. Um, like Jim, I, I've got a law degree, I, I've, I've also got a master's. Um, but it was so long ago that I obtained it that I, I, I don't remember too much from, from studying way back then. Well, I feel like... Um... I feel like I'm surrounded by the brains of Britain then, because I must be the only one in the room without a master's degree. Um, perhaps I need to go back to uni. Well, look, thanks. That's that's a really interesting insight into your guys' backgrounds. Um, Kevin, obviously, the, the subject of today's talk predominantly is around the interplay between court of protection, community care, and education law. Um, can you give the the listeners? bit of background about what education law is. I mean, it's not something any of us would have studied on any of our various degrees. It's probably something that the listeners didn't study. Um, what actually is it? No, well, personally, I think it's one of the most fascinating areas of law, but I, but I would say that. Education law is, is, is quite broad, and it can cover a whole host of issues from, from public law disputes, um, from contractual disputes, such as disputes between students and universities, um, organisational issues in terms of school, college or university organisational issues and then there is very specifics in terms of discrimination, exclusions, admissions, all of which have, have, their, have their own specific pieces of legislation, school reorganisations and, and the area that I undertake most work within which is spe special educational needs. Um, and they're both different in the jurisdictions of both England and Wales. So as a very brief overview, that's education law in a minute or two. What's, um, what's SEN law then? What's, what's the difference between that and other aspects of education law? Well, special educational needs law has its own specific legislation. In England, if we, if we take England first, um, the key piece of legislation to look at is the Children and Families Act. And that sets up a regime whereby those children with special educational needs who require special educational provision are afforded additional protections, as it were. And they're, they're afforded those additional protections through what is called an education, health and care plan. Now, the benefit to, to a child or young person in having such a plan is that the local authority who maintains that plan has a non-delegable duty to arrange all of the provision within that plan. And when I say provision, I'm talking about special educational provision, which also includes placements. So, so, so the benefits for children and young people of having such a plan are, are really quite substantial in, in my view. That's interesting. So, so in a nutshell then, it's about ensuring that disabled children get the right support when they need it in school. Yes, I, I think that, that's fair. That's put far more eloquently than I was able to do, but that, that's absolutely right. And you, you focus on representing individuals, don't you? I do, that's, that's correct. Jim, you obviously have a, as I guess most barristers do, a mixed bag. Yes. What's your, what's your thought from a local authority or, or school perspective on what education law covers? Is there anything extra you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that society educates its next generations and continues to educate adults it must be one of the most important functions of the state. 
and local government is the body responsible for that when it comes to special educational needs. Uh, there's often a dispute about what goes into the plan. There's often a dispute about whether or not the plan is being delivered. Um, and that forms the core part of my practice. From a local authority perspective, if they get it right, it should reduce the needs um, of its citizens. Um, as they approach adulthood, if they're able to work independently and live independently. Um, and that really has to be the goal. And when it works well, we see really good, positive outcomes. When it works badly, it's one of the most stressful periods in many families' lives. Yeah, so there's a, there's a wider perspective there, isn't there? If you get it right, it saves, saves the local authorities' hassle in the long run um, and also helps its, its citizens, I guess. Absolutely. And uh, I can say, for the most part, local authorities do try to get it right. Uh, in my experience. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, for the listeners, you can't see, but Kevin is frantically shaking his head. Um, I've no doubt if you, you would probably be the first to accept that the, the difficulty is that you only see it when it goes wrong, I guess, from the individual's perspective. I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I, I, I only see the cases when things have gone wrong. Um, clients will only come to me when they've got a problem they don't come to me when things are going right as it were especially in relation to education so so I, I, I do accept when I see it, it it is always the worst case scenario and, and I should say if, if I'm going to make, a, make an assertion I should perhaps offer some fact but I, I was speaking to one local authority in London I, I won't name it but they told me that they maintain 2,300 plans uh, at any one time there are 45 applications a month for a new plan, um, but they only have 23 appeals um, a year. Really? So I, th- I think that gives an indication for, 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 for Kevin's insight, which is probably yeah. around those 23 uh, which, which go to appeal. That's really interesting. Say that again. So the 23, 23 going to appeal, how many overall? Uh, they've got 20, uh, roughly 2,300 maintained plans. They have about 45 applications a month for a new one. Uh, and of those, uh, every year they have about 23 appeals, um, which might relate to refusing to create a plan, it might relate to an annual review gone wrong uh, or otherwise. So that's what, 10, 10%? I mean, I'm not great in maths, but that, 23 into... No, that, that, that's, very, that's very low numbers in terms of appeal rates for, for, for that local authority. So clearly that local authority is doing something right. Yeah. Absolutely, clearly that local authority is doing something right. So, so how then does education law, or if you want, SEN law, how does that fit in with what the listeners might be more familiar with, so court of protection and community care regime? Well, it's interesting because prior to the Children and Families Act 2014, education was on its own, and special educational need was on its own, and prior to that we had statements. Um, now, with the new year, well, I say the new year, is nearly 10 years old now, the Children and Families Act, but with the Children and Families Act came education, health and care plans. So the health was included and the, the C, the care, and what we mean by care, we mean social care, was all included. So you now have a far more holistic document whereby the social care should also be included in the EHC plan. And with the tribunal now having jurisdiction to make recommendations in regards to health and social care, they are intrinsically linked. And 
if, if you look at the social care legislation that there is those obligations to take into account learning opportunities and so forth and if you look at the education legislation I'm thinking in particular section 21 subsection 5 which effectively states that any health or social care provision which educates or trains is to be deemed a special educational provision. So the interplay between education and social care is tighter than it's ever been, and I think that's right. I think for far too long you've had different departments looking at things separately, and actually it's far more, more beneficial for all involved if they're looked at holistically. Where I've seen a great rise in terms of quarter protection is bear in mind, prior to the Children and Families Acts, statements ceased at 19 maximum now you've got education health and care plans that can be maintained up to 25 years of age and a substantial amount of my practice is around those 18 19 year olds um, and determining issues you know I know we'll come on to talk about the, the, the various tests in terms of capacity but that that's where I, I've seen a, a, a large upsurge in work dealing with those young adults where we're looking at college placements um, dealing with those young adults where there is questions about capacity whether that be uh, fluctuating capacity or whether that be mixed capacity in terms of having capacity to make some decisions but, but not others um, and the interplay between the SEND tribunal and what that can order and what the Court of Protection's role is in terms of determining best interests is becoming increasingly prevalent in, in, in my experience. That's interesting. I mean, you, you, you talk about the SEN Tribunal. Jim, what are your... What can the SEN Tribunal order that's different to, to what the COP... When, when would you say that going down the SEN Tribunal route would be more appropriate than, than going down the COP route? Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, the, the SEN Tribunal will primarily deal with disputes about the plan itself, um, say the Education Health and Care Plan, um, that's whether or not an assessment has been undertaken by the local authority. If it has been undertaken, what the result of that assessment is, and uh, third of all, the contents of the plan itself. There are now extended appeals um, before the Tribunal which look at health and social care needs and can make recommendations in that regard. Um, that's reasonably new um, and I would expect there to be much more interest in how local authorities discharge its health and social care obligations um, when it uh, applies those recommendations or when the associated bodies are discharging uh, those uh, features. The course of protection um, will largely come in when there's a dispute about best interests um, for a young person. Um, and that, that, that's when I expect you to get to the COP to resolve that issue. I suppose it's the, 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 one of the other key points, and I guess, is the age of the, the subject, right? So you've got, you've got the child and young person distinction under the education legislation, mm -hmm. so the COP obviously doesn't come into it until they're um, transitioning between children and adult services. So I suppose that's another... Key factor. I, I think an interesting factor to consider is it, it's the purpose of the Senate Tribunal to determine effectively what the local authority's obligations are to that young person in terms of what special educational provision is, is required. Um, because if the provisions set out in Section F of an EHC plan or a placement set out in Section I, 
what that means is the local authority is responsible for arranging it, which effectively is responsible for funding it. That information can then be brought into court of protection proceedings to illustrate that it's an available option when the court of protection is then making best interest decisions, which are different to the decisions that the Senate Tribunal are, are, are making. I, I think quite often some individuals can get a little confused as, as to the jurisdiction, the jurisdiction limits of both the tribunal and the court of protection, but I, I think that's probably the simplest and easiest way of looking at it. Maybe as a, a concrete example, you know, what one case I was working on, it was very clear that a young person had special educational needs, very clear that there was to be funding um, of a very specialised plan that involved two to one um, care around the clock. And the issue within that uh, case was a dispute between the local authority and the parents about where that education um, should take place and where associated health needs um, should be met. But you can imagine a dispute where parents, for example, who don't get along perhaps disagree about what's best for the protected party, where they should be educated. Uh, and that, uh, when it relates to an adult, um, would very much be within the jurisdiction of the Court of Protection. Interesting. So, the Children and Families Act then, Kevin, from what you were saying, Jim, you mentioned earlier as well, that's a 2014 Act, isn't it? That's correct. Um, well, it's now, I won't give away when we're recording this, but it's 2023, certainly. Um, it's been nearly 10 years since the Children and Families Act came into force. Um, have you noticed COP or ComCare issues crop up more in your education practice over the, the years? Absolutely. I think over the, over the last five, three to five years... Come on, you've been practising a lot longer I've, than I've been practising a lot longer than that, but in terms of a dramatic increase, I've been seeing it over the last three to five years. And the first increase I've seen is in relation to where the tribunal is now able to make recommendations in relation to health and social care. The second increase I've seen is, of course, the Children and Families Act extends up to the age of 25. Now, when the Act first came in, we didn't see that many. We saw some, but not that many cases involving post-19 young people. We are seeing increasing numbers of those now. And actually, just as a whole, and for those that don't practice within the educational, special educational needs, you may not be aware of this, but over the last couple of years, the tribunal has seen a dramatic increase in the number of appeals that have been lodged with it. Now, there may be a whole host of reasons for that that, that may may involve COVID and, and so forth, but that there has been a dramatic increase in numbers of cases. What I've seen in terms of the interplay between quarter protection and special educational needs is, again, really over only the last three to five years, but there is far more disputes that require resolution by both jurisdictions. And it's becoming more common to have disputes running parallel in both jurisdictions at the same time. I, I, I've got a case at the moment where that, that's exactly that's exactly the case. I, I mean, just to jump in, Ken, what, what disputes 
do require resolution by both jurisdictions. What kind of examples have you have you seen? Well, I, I need to be careful about what to say about an ongoing matter. Mm. But, but, but the but the obvious one would be the there is dispute in relation to whether a young person has capacity in relation to a number of domains, and that 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 of course is the jurisdiction of the Court of Protection to make declarations in 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 regards to capacity, and then move on and potentially make best interest decisions. Um, and it's the jurisdiction of, of the tribunal to identify what the local authority's obligations are in relation to fulfilling its duties under the Children and Families Act to that young person. So, so that's where you may well have two case, two cases running parallel, because the what the SENS tribunal determines may influence what decisions the Court of Protection is able to make in terms of best interest in regards to available options. Because if there is no guarantee of funding for an option, then it can't be a readily available option. But if there is an order from the SEN Tribunal requiring the local authority to fund it, then when looking at best interests, the Court of Protection is able to consider it a suitable available option. Okay, and Jim, just bringing you in, and I know yeah. you're, um, it's probably fair to say, less long in the tooth than Kevin. Yes. Um, what's your What's your view on it? Have you noticed COP issues crop up in your education practice, or education issues crop up in your COP and public law practice over the, the years more? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the extended appeals are certainly a, a really pertinent issue, and yeah. I entirely agree with, with Kevin in relation to that, and I think there's going to be a lot more litigation around that in the years um, ahead. Um, one interesting area that often rears its head within court of protection proceedings, it's also common in planning proceedings, frankly, where local authorities uh, involved is can you make the local authority pay for it um, <laughs> and you know one of the advantages when you have someone under the age of 25 where there is this duty to look at the plan uh, there's a specialist tribunal um, that you can go to to spell out precisely what the funding should be and there's no costs risk i'd be really interested to hear about the situation when you've got someone over 25 that judicial review might well be the, the remedy there if you want to get the local authority to fund something and they're not willing to and that comes with all sorts of costs, risk. Um, so that that's a really good example of the overplay. And when developing strategy, and you really want to consider how the overplay interplay and, and whether one can be used to achieve better outcomes than the other. That's interesting. What about deputy ships? Because they, I mean, so when we we, we discussed the transition earlier, and the the transition of a of a young person from children to adult services. If I was the parent of a of a young person, particularly one with SEN or disabilities. I mean, I've seen it myself in my education practice. The, the parents of, of these young people are extremely dedicated and extremely proactive in looking after their children. Yes, we can argue about whether they have to be because the local authority doesn't do its job, etc. But on a, on a practical basis, there is an obvious loss of ability to make a decision for their child when they hit 18 and I suppose in that respect deputy ships come into it don't they? Well that's that, that's right they do um, and I wouldn't say when we talk about deputy ships of course there's, there's, there's two types there's hmm. your property and finance and your personal welfare and what we're really looking at here 
is is your personal welfare deputyships. Now, I, I think it, it, it's fair to say the Court of Protection is reluctant to make such orders, but certainly can and will do in, in appropriate circumstances. And in my experience, where you've got a young person living with their parents, those parents have been making decisions day in, day out for a number of years. And the only difference is now that young person's turned 18, but the parents are still required to make decisions literally on a daily or possibly weekly basis, then the argument, and the Court of Protection will need to be persuaded, but the argument before the Court of Protection is, well, it's not practical to come to you every single day or every week to seek your authority to make best interest decisions. We, we need the deputyship to do that. Um, and in, in the appropriate circumstances, the Court of Protection will grant such a deputyship. Now, in terms of the interplay with the Special Educational Needs Tribunal, when a young person turns 18, it's no longer the parents that have the right to appeal the relevant decision to the said tribunal, it's the young person that does. Now, if the young person lacks capacity, what, what the relevant regulations say is that if there is a LPA or a deputyship in place, then the right of appeal refers to the attorney or the deputy. If neither of those are in place and the young person lacks capacity, the right of appeal refers back to the parent in any event. So that's an example of even where there is no deputyship order in place, other pieces of legislation giving parents rights that they would not normally otherwise have over an adult. Okay. Um, sorry, Jim. Uh, I was going to say, I suppose, well, one issue that must arise there is the, the distinction between litigation capacity and, and capacity of other uh, uh, specific domains, um, which... Um, yeah, absolutely, I, absolutely. Yeah. I, I suppose what I'm saying is, even if they lack capacity to, to litigate the first year tribunal, you must have circumstances where the court of protection perhaps has to get involved in other elements of life. Oh, absolutely. Interesting. You mentioned the appropriate circumstances to make an application for deputyship orders. What kind of circumstances is it not appropriate? I think it, it would be very difficult. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's inappropriate, mm. um, so I'll choose my words carefully, but I think it would be difficult to persuade the court to grant a parent or parents a personal welfare deputyship where, for example, the young person is living in residential accommodation away from those parents. Because the whole point of a deputyship is to give authority to make decisions pretty much on a daily or weekly basis, which it's not practical to ask the court to make one-off decisions on. Mm. Um, so I, I, I do consider in, in those cases it would be difficult to persuade the court that actually the quite what the court considers quite a draconian measure in making a deputyship order is actually in that young person's best interests. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the one thing that, well, I know, I know Jim has, and I have as well, been involved in contested deputyship applications. Um, I'll ask you the, the unanswerable question, Kevin. What is your um, success rate of actually getting health and welfare deputyship applications granted because they're quite difficult aren't they they are i, I mean 
fortunately, my success rate is really quite high. But that is because I like to think that I advise clients appropriately and thoroughly uh, from the beginning in terms of their prospects and in terms of the likelihood of the court actually granting the application. So overall, actually, if you look at the court statistics in terms of the number of applications and those that are granted, it's not particularly high. Um, it, my practice is, is a lot higher than, than those statistics suggest, but that's, that is because I advise appropriately in terms of prospects from, from the start, as it, as it were. Well, I suppose that the crux of the issue is that you might get 10 clients come to you wanting to make an application, yeah. but you might only actually advise and therefore get instructed to make one or two. That's, exa that's exactly the point. That's, that's exactly the point. Do you ever do property and affairs applications? I do, um, although at, at my firm I have colleagues who, who are far better more well-versed than I am. Um, so if it's simply property and affairs, and I, I will refer it on, on to a colleague, where, where I become involved in property and affairs is generally where there is a dispute in regards to personal welfare, and then a property and affairs dispute arises in the course of those proceedings. I've got one at the moment where exactly that issue arose literally a day before a directions hearing, and con consequently we, we had to deal with it at that, that directions hearing to get into it, interim declarations and orders in place. Okay. Cool. Please, on, on, on that point, well, one thing I was being asked, Kevin, was mm. just about placements and, and the availability of placements. Because, I mean, that's often an issue in education law. You've often got issues about the school and whether the right provision being put in place and whether they can accommodate a child. But I've had more and more issues arising in my court of protection practice about appropriate uh, care homes in certain situations where you have deprivations of liberty um, and making sure there's an appropriate peer group, particularly where special educational uh, needs are involved for an adult, um, but they are very young. Um, it's, it's, it's been difficult in, in a few cases I've been in to find an appropriate peer group in places. And there's lots on the news at the moment about the shortage of children's homes. Um, I haven't seen quite as much about the shortage of special education we need school places, although I think that will reattack more. But I just wanted to hear what your experience is in court protection in that regard. I, I think you're absolutely right. We are seeing an unprecedented demand um, for independent specialist provision in, ter in terms of schools. And actually, the difficulty now is that the placements that once would always have one or two places available, now don't. The waiting list, you're looking at six, nine, 12 months, if you're lucky. So actually identifying suitable placements, just not a matter of laws, a matter of practicality, is becoming increasingly more difficult. And I'm aware of a number of um, independent groups that are, that are looking to, to build placements, but you can't build a school in a day. Yes. Um, it, 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 if you can do it in 24 months and you're doing very, very well from, from planning stage to identifying relevant land, um, obtaining the relevant registrations, having Ofsted come in and do a pre-open inspection and so forth, it, it's not a short fix. Here's a, a question for both of you then, really. Something that I, I had a chat with a 
cop solicitor yesterday um, who does a lot of work in relation to people transitioning between children and adult services. <clears throat> and one of the things I think we both agreed on is the fact that the public sector as a whole, due to resource issues and generally being overworked, I think, they they don't necessarily start the transition of a young person between children and adult services early enough. Mm. Um, or at least they don't be proactive in, in, in pushing it forward. Do you have any views on that? Either of you? I mean, ideally, in terms of transition, that really should be... One, one should start looking at transition at the age of 14. It, it, it is what, what should be happening, and it should be looked at at every annual review post that. Um, does it happen in reality? Not always. Um, is it critical? In some cases not, but in some cases absolutely so. Um, especially if you've got a child or young person with really quite complex needs, then it may well take a couple of years to identify the relevant placement. As, as Jim alluded to, these are difficult placements to find and actually it may take a couple of years and it may take a couple of years of, of, of planning as well. And, and I think on, on that one of the things that local authorities need to be alive to, particularly with extended appeals, is, is the overlap of their teams. It's no longer just children's services dealing with education. Suddenly you've got you know, health departments you need to speak to, social care departments, sometimes adult social care, because often the, the social care that's needed for these children is actually support for the carers, for the parents, which engages adult social care. And sometimes you, as, as any organisation, you end up with silo teams who don't speak together. And I think you need a round table uh, approach by local authorities, and the local authorities that best discharge their duties are the ones that have nailed that, um, I think. Um, but with the transition, um, you know, I, I certainly hope with the extended appeals becoming more and more common, that we see an increase in that, that sort of teamwork approach. Um, and ultimately, um, local authorities that succeed will be those that do that. I think that's absolutely right, Jim. I mean, certainly from my, my own experience, and it's the siloing you talk about is, is a problem that I think all the local authorities struggle with, even in the legal teams. I mean, I... I speak to lots of local authority lawyers and they, they always say the same thing, which is they have lawyers who deal with childcare law. That's obviously an enormous part of local authority work generally. They have the property and the contract teams. They may have someone who deals with education. They might have someone who deals with adult social care if they're lucky. But they never have a lawyer who deals with the interplay between them both. And I mean, we can't really complain because it probably keeps us in a job, frankly, Jim. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting um, that local authorities, from a from a legal team perspective, often have a, a lacking there as well. Yeah, and I suppose it goes to, to the need of, of, of the modern lawyer, um, uh, perhaps almost to move away from specialisation and more to move towards generalisation in a sense, where you need to understand that overlap much more. Um, it's not enough to just be an expert in a narrow area if you don't understand the interplay at all. Uh, as much as local authorities, or we'd like it, the local authorities instructed four or five barristers, <laughs> to cover uh, each of the silent issues that arise. Uh, the reality is often it's, it's one person. Lots of infighting. Um, sorry, Kev. I was going to say, actually, I can give you an example. I've got a case at the moment that I, I alluded to earlier that both in the Court of Protection and in the SENS Tribunal, and I'm, of course, acting on both issues, but in behalf of the local authority, they've got one solicitor dealing with the Court of Protection issues and they've got a separate solicitor dealing with the education issues, and it's not clear certainly not clear to me how much 
discussion there is b b b b between those two, and it seems to me that there's probably quite a, quite a lot of overlap of work, and it's probably not the most productive. But I, but I do I do agree in terms of the modern lawyer. When when I first started this work, I was an educational lawyer. That's all I did. I didn't look at social care. I didn't look at community care. I didn't look at COP. Um, I don't think I could practice effectively now if I just kept within that bubble because there is so much interplay and because the legislation requires there to be so much interplay it, it, as a modern lawyer that, that, that's what we have to do and picking up on the point in regards to the social services department I see that quite often where you've got a child in need department and you've got a disabled person's department and they've each got their own criteria for which department takes on the child and there's so many cases where the child falls in the middle um, and I'm saying well hang on you've got obligations here under the chronically sick and disabled persons act and you've got obligations here under section 17 of the children act it's not a matter for me which team we fall under you local authority bang your heads together and, and sort it out um, and, and quite often local authorities become undone at tribunal in, the, in relation to that. So it, it, if there are local authority advisors out there listening, I, I would say if, if you can get those teams working together in a proactive manner, it it's going to be better for everyone. Absolutely. That That is a very interesting comment and it links us wonderfully to the next area of, of discussion that I wanted to wrap both of your brains on. Um, Kevin, if I start with you first, you focus on representing individuals. As you know, lots of people who listen to this show are representatives of public bodies. I think we can all agree that there's often animosity builds up in these cases, particularly over the lifespan of them. What, from your perspective, as someone who regularly deals with individual litigants, are the biggest things that public bodies can do to improve that working relationship and ultimately help diffuse tension and, and litigation? Well, I'll answer that, but 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 let's let's let take one step back from that. And actually, what could public bodies do to avoid litigation um, and avoid court protection? That, that that might be a question that, that your listeners might be more interested to, to to hear about. In my experience, in terms of court of protection, poor capacity assessments come up time and time again, um, and then they're always a subject of dispute before the court of protection. So what I would say is if there are local authority advisors out there, if you can ensure that the individuals on the ground that are carrying out the capacity assessments are fully trained, fully understand, fully appreciate the information that an individual is required to understand and retain in relation to each specific decision, that will make your capacity assessments far more robust because time and time and time again I've just seen a document that says they've got capacity yes or no effectively hasn't split it into the domains in terms of what we're talking about. We talk about residence, we talk about social care, we talk about education, we talk about contact, we talk about sexual relations and qu quite often I, I've seen local authority capacity assessments that don't deal with domain by domain by domain. So certainly ensure that those carrying out your capacity assessments fully understand what the Mental Capacity Act requires. Because if you've got a far more robust capacity assessment, you're far like, less likely to have a challenge. The 
other thing I would say, um, and I, I advise individuals that they need to do the same, is keep an open dialogue. Um, and ensure that in terms of any best interest decisions, as one, make sure that the capacity assessment's cogent, but two, in terms of best interest decisions, that all relevant stakeholders are actually involved within a best interest decision meeting while, and feel like they're involved. Because if you have that, you're far more likely to have a best interest meeting where all relevant stakeholders come to a joint decision that's in the protected party's best interest without there being a dispute. And if there's not a dispute, it's going to avoid you costly and very time-intensive litigation. The other thing I would say, um, and lastly, would be in terms of deprivation of liberty. Safeguard challenges, Section 21A. Is, I know we're coming into the era of LPSs at some point. Um, oh, you say that. At some point, at some <laughs> point. But be proactive um, and ensure that your clients are proactive so that if your clients are aware that a party is objecting to their placement, then be proactive about that because you know that's coming down the line in terms of a, a, a a section 21a challenge well actually if you can be proactive and try and identify alternatives um, and discuss matters with the rpr and avoid proceedings then that in the long run is one going to be better for the protected party two going to be quicker for both the local authority and protected party four going to save the local authority legal costs and five save the legal aid agency legal costs Thanks, Kevin. Um, Jim, then, so from your your perspective, <clears throat> and to bring a bit of balance in, from representing public bodies, what are the biggest things that individuals could do, do you think, from a, from a public body perspective, to improve working relationships or um, reduce animosity? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Kevin's point around sitting around a table and having a solutions-focused uh, approach is really sensible. Um, and really important, and I've seen that in family law, uh, in all sorts of cases where you have really entrenched positions, it is those parties that are most uh, open to talking and think about solutions to the problems who uh, reach the best outcomes. Um, what I've seen is really effective is when um, parents, um, families, who seek a particular placement or seek a particular uh, peer group and put forward proposals of their own for what the ideal placement looks like and give examples where it's worked. That is a really effective way um, of putting the uh, putting it back in the local authorities' court, really, to see if they can either find a place within that provision or find similar provision. Um, and, and I found that, that research from, from family members and, and the other side has really been useful in, in making the local authority lean in and try to match that. Brilliant. So in terms of this year, you mentioned earlier on, Jim, yeah. about litigation in the year ahead. Um, so what are your, your predictions of the future issues coming up this year? Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more around uh, home health and social care uh, from extended appeals um, being litigated 
uh, and that having an overlap within the border protection um, in terms of how it's provided uh, and who it's provided by. Wonderful. How about you, Kevin? Any predictions? I think the difficulties that we've seen over the last couple of years are are going to manifest on a continued basis. I, I think certainly issues around 18 to 19 year olds um, and disputes as to placements and independent living placements versus independent specialist placements, that I foresee is is a live issue that, that's that's going to rear its head again and again and again. Interesting. I mean, from, for what it's worth, from my part, um, I, I bang on about this quite a lot because of the other kind of work I do. But I think the reporting restrictions aspects of the of, in the COP and the closed material procedures, etc., are are inevitably going to to give rise to more litigation. I mean, look. So we we can't we can't do a podcast on the interplay between education and the court of protection without mentioning one one thing and that is the court's decision in a local authority in GP um, for the for the listeners benefit the reference is 2020 England and Wales court of protection number 56 I know before you both came in you both um, indulged me and read the decision what are your what are your thoughts on it well, Matt, it may, and I'm sure all of your listeners have, have, have read the case, but it, it, it may assist for the purposes of the podcast. If I just run through what, what the court looked at and what it decided, yeah. um, and then, then I can give you my two bobs worth, as it were, in terms, in terms of what, what I think, um, or what I think the court may or may not have got, got, got right, as it were. Um, for, or wrong. For, or wrong. You can say oh. they got it wrong. Well, well. We'll come on to that. No, no spoiler alerts. No spoiler alerts. So in GP, the key issue was in relation to capacity and whether P had capacity in relation to a number of issues. And there were four of those issues that the court looked at. The first was whether P had capacity to refuse a social care assessment. The second was whether P had capacity to make decisions in relation to their social care and support. The third was whether P had capacity to request an EHC needs assessment. And the fourth, it seems to me, was whether P had capacity to make decisions in regards to education more generally. Now, if I deal with the social care aspects first and then I'll come on to education because it seems to me and it's probably no surprise to your listeners that that I've considered the education aspects probably more problematic but in relation to a refusal to a social care assessment what his honour judge Dodd said was the information relevant in terms of needing to understand and make a capacious decision was threefold. Firstly, um, P needed to understand that a local authority has a statutory duty to meet a person's eligible care needs, which may be to prevent or delay the development of needs for care and support or reducing needs that already exist. 
The second piece of information that P was required to understand, and obviously way up, um, was that the assessor may speak to other adults or professionals involved in P's care, and that P may refuse to consent to this. And the third piece of information what the P was required to understand was that the local authority will assess how P's well-being can be promoted and whether meeting these needs will help P achieve his desired outcomes. So they, those were the three key pieces of information that his honour judge Dodds found was necessary for an individual to be able to understand and weigh up to make a capacious decision in regards to a refusal to carry out a social care assessment. If we then look at the second decision, as it were, and, and that does, that, that's whether or not P has capacity to make decisions in regards to social care and support more generally, it, it seems to me his honour judge Dodds effectively approved the guidance in the LBX um, and KLM and M case. And effectively, the information that was required in that case was, or the information that the protected party was required to be able to understand in that case, was firstly, um, that with P's needs support, what sort of support P needs, who will provide such support, what would happen without such support, or if they refused it, and that carers may not always treat P properly, and the possibility and mechanics of making a complaint if P is not happy. Now those were all the pieces of information that P was required to be able to understand and weigh up in order to have capacity to make decisions in regards to social care. In relation to both of those, and, and, and I'll, well, I'm sure we'll hear from yourself, Matt, and we'll hear from him Jim, from Jim later on, but I don't have too much of a difficulty with that. I, I, I think, think that, that, that that's quite sensible. If we then look to the third area where the court looked at what information is required um, for an individual to have a capacious or to be able to make a capacious decision. That was in relation to capacity to request an EHC needs assessment. Mm. And what, what His Honour Judge Dodds said there, I think is quite interesting. What he said is, P must be able to understand that an EHC plan is a document that says what support a child or young person who has special educational needs should have. Um, they must understand that other people will be consulted during the assessment process, including parents, teachers and other professionals. Um, they must be able to understand that if assessed as requiring education, health and care, the young person has enforceable right to the education set out within their plan. And finally, he said that the protected party must understand that an EHC plan is only available up to the age of 25 years. Now, there were additional submissions on this in relation to additional pieces of information that his Honour Judge Dodds said were not necessary. Now, the big key concern I have is we're looking at whether or not an individual has capacity to request an EHC needs assessment. E-education, H, health, C, care. Mm. And it seems to me that he is focused solely on 
education. Now, the difficulty with that is part and parcel of an EHC needs assessment will require a local authority to obtain information in relation to social and health care. They should be doing that as part of the needs assessment. So if that's part of the process, it seems to me a little odd that in terms of deciding whether an individual has capacity, they shouldn't be able to, they, in my view, they must be able to appreciate that a part of that needs assessment, health and social care information will be obtained as well. Um, well, now, particularly, particularly when you look at the fact that they are capable of being just as enforceable as education. Well, as certainly health is. Certainly health is. Yeah. Yeah. As you say, they they're consulted as part of the process. The EHC plan itself will set out what the child or young person needs in relation to those facets, and health and care is available up to the age of twenty-five as well. Well, and and actually, and and we can get quite technical about this, but. Section 21, subsection 5 of the Children and Families Act is quite clear that health or social care provision which educates or trains is deemed to be special educational provision. Um, and and it, it seems to me that the Court of Protection didn't necessarily appreciate those nuances and didn't necessarily appreciate exactly what an EHC plan is, can be, does, and what's required in terms of an EHC needs assess the EHC needs assessment process. Um, now it'll it'll be interesting if 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 anyone wants to comment on on this podcast as as to what 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 other people's views are. But that 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 that's cer- certainly my concern. Um, that there, there was further piece of information, and and one of those were put forward to us on a. Uh, Judge Dodds that, that he rejected and one of those was that if the assessor as requiring an EHC plan social care and health key, health needs may be included on the plan and that may be advantageous to P in having his needs met. Now that was rejected as a piece of information that the protected party needs to take into account. I not sure I'd necessarily phrase the information in the way it was phrased there, but I do certainly think that there needs to be an understanding that the needs assessment will take into account health and care, and that a plan should, should, should or can in certain number of cases, should include health and, health and care as well. Jim, you were going to come. Yeah, that yeah. I, 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 I was thinking about it for for two reasons. The first, I suppose, is that the decision of the court was that P lacked capacity. So even without these additional pieces of information, it, it doesn't seem that it would have changed the outcome if if they were included. Uh, and I say that because that perhaps is relevant to how much force it has, and, and, and to, to to what extent it can be seen as a judgment on the fact of this case, as opposed to a general precedent that will necessarily bind all future cases. Um, but second of all, it, it, it's whether, for example, you could have a situation where there's capacity for elements of the plan, um, but not for the entirety. Um, uh, and I suppose perhaps when you're requesting an assessment, it, it, it is the plan on the whole. Um, it's whether they should be separate domains. I mean, it's an interesting point, because the question is whether or not you've got capacity to request an EHC needs assessment. So I'm not sure if you can necessarily subdivide it. Subdivide it. But then, once you have an EHC plan, 
you probably could certainly subdivide whether you've got capacity in relation to make decisions in regards to education versus social care because actually the information required for both from what we understand from this decision is different so logically you would be able to subdivide it at that stage yeah and i suppose if there were disputes amongst those who who care for p then you could see litigation around that and the, the, the fourth area that the court looked at was the information required by an individual to understand in order to make a capacious decision in relation to education more generally. Mm. Um, now, it's my view that the court didn't really resolve this. I mean, it made final fan- findings um, and it, it, it did decide on, on the facts of this particular case that P lacked capacity, but it didn't really set out in the same level of detail the information that is required in order to, to to be able to make decisions more generally in relation to education, which I, I think is a little un, unhelpful. Now, what, what it did do, I mean, the OS's position was that the information necessary to be understood, as it were, were the type of provision, the type of qualifications, if any, on offer, the cohort of pupils, and whether P would match the profile of other pupils at the provision, that P has additional rights up to the age of 25 because of his special educational needs. That, now that was the information that the OS put forward as being relevant in determining whether an individual has capacity to make decisions in relation to education generally. There was expert evidence that, that put forward further considerations, but that they appear to have been rejected. Um, (coughs) And um, I've got a concern with that, because if you look at what was simply put forward by the official solicitor, it seems to me that is very much focused on a school or a college and qualifications. However, the vast majority of the young people I act for in this type of scenario aren't necessarily concerned with a GCSE qualification or an A-level qualification or a BTEC. Actually, what's key for them is life skills and independent skills. And nowhere is, is, is that set out in terms of the information that they need to be able to, to understand. I, I think that's, that's personally key. Now, I know, Jim, we, we were just all talking and having a discussion prior to start of recording this and, and what, what, what you rightly said to me is well could all of that come under the, the first piece of information to be considered which is the type of provision and I, I think arguably I appreciate that arguably I, th- I think that's the case but I think it, it, if that is going to be the case that, that needs to be spelled out mm. because on its face the type of provision could be taken as the type of school or, or, or type of college so, in relation to education, I don't think we've got real clear guidance as to the information that's going to be required for cases moving forward. Um, but, Matthew, Jim, I'd be interested to hear what, what you think. Yeah, I, I suppose it's what um, Michael Jay said at paragraph 37 in relation to LBL 
and uh, RYG and BJ. Um, and, and that, I think, is essentially the warning um, that to require too great an understanding um, of the sub-facets of every decision might put too great a burden upon P um, when it comes to um, deciding whether or not they have capacity. Uh, and, and that was very much in the judges' sort of and I, I, and I, I appreciate that because because effectively the the argument may well be well okay if we're looking at education generally actually that's very different to looking at education in relation to an EHC plan but what I would say is, is we are looking at education more generally so why is it relevant to be able to understand that P has additional rights up to the age of twenty five because of his special educational needs yes. What, 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 why is that in there then? Yes. Um, and I, 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 I appreciate not every single facet needs to... It's not helpful for there would be a requirement to understand every single facet. But in terms of what is likely to be very important for, 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 for the young people that we're dealing with in terms of life skills, independent skills, it, it seems to be an omission that, that may not be helpful. Yes. I mean, I think it's 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 an interesting point that you guys raise. I mean, Kevin, I, I think I share your view in relation to the capacity to request an EHA needs assessment, that the failure or the the lack of a requirement to consider health and care is, is a failing there. Um, my bigger problem is actually with the second aspect, so the capacity to make decisions as to in education, um, primarily for two reasons. Firstly, capacity is a decision-specific issue, as we all know, and it seems to me that the premise upon which this case was decided was, was simply too vague. I think the capacity to make decisions as to one's education is too is, is, is simply too vague, and it's not realistic. The, the reality is that when you're looking at cases from an educational perspective, you need to be much more focused on what the actual issue is for various reasons, I mean, including the fact, as you say, that what education is to, to each, each individual is going to be so specific so if the premise is too vague then then what follows is likely to be unhelpful um, but also if we're looking at the capacity to make decisions as to education that doesn't in my mind seem to be what's actually addressed by the relevant considerations the relevant considerations that have been adopted from this case appear to assume that there are competing placements or at least a available placement to PE to go to and a lot of the cases that I deal with that is simply not the case mm -hmm. um, I mean I've, I've seen this case trying well, I've seen local authorities try to apply this case um, because of the fact that the test is so vague in a variety of circumstances including um, whether or not P has the capacity to make a decision as to whether to um, continue to engage with education full stop on the premise that if if he didn't want to and he had capacity to make that decision then a local authority could cease to maintain an EHC plan um, and, I, and they're just they're, they're just talking across purposes. And, and I suppose the point there is, is, is the general warning about lists as a way of resolving capacity. Uh, yeah. you, you know, lists have to change case by case, they're only guides uh, and they shouldn't be followed slavishly um, and um, I, I suppose from your, all the observations made here Certainly, if me and Matt were appearing against each other, uh, I suspect we might well find ourselves agreeing a, a distinct list. And uh, actually, I've just had a thought. Uh, you, you make a really good point, Matt. What happens if we're looking at a residential educational placement? Mm. Yeah. 
because then surely the test of residence needs to be incorporated as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would it would, would the straightforward well not straightforward would the would the usual test for residence apply in circumstances where the person who's going to be residing there is not just receiving care and support but they're also receiving in theory qualifications or life skills or independence training they're going to have potentially a much more structured day yeah also they, they may not need to understand that they've got to sign a tenancy because they may not have to sign a tenancy because if it's named in the yeah. EHC plan local authority will be responsible for it so that, that, I think what that proves is you're right capacity to make decisions in relation to education is just too vague a term I mean it's interesting so when I when we were preparing for this podcast and I I was looking at the decision I mean there's there's no decisions coming off the back of it it's not what doesn't seem to me to have been applied to any other case so I wonder if that is is testament enough to the fact that it is quite helpful mm. um, and and appears to have been argued from the wrong point. Well, well, one question perhaps is, is whether your position would change on it being too broad if one were considering making a, a deputyship order to make decisions about education going forward. Why? On the basis that that's the decision that the deputy would be making. I don't know if it would. I mean, it's an interesting point. I don't know if it would change it for me because the deputy would still need to know the specific decision that needed to be made. Mm. Um, but what if it was an ongoing decision, as, as Kevin said earlier, you know, one a week, several a day, potentially? How would that work in practice, I suppose, would be my response to that? I mean, the reality is I don't know. We need to, we yeah. need to think it through. But I, I don't know if I could see the practical reality of that happening yeah. where a, a weekly decision would need to be taken on education. Also, it doesn't appear to me that the factors listed really envisage a situation of a home-based programme. Because no. we, we're talking about the type of placement, the type of qualifications on offer, the peer group, the cohorts, doesn't really seem to envisage a home-based programme. No, although to be fair on the facts of that case, it probably wasn't relevant. And, and, no, I, and, I, and, I take your point that how, how are we considering this in future cases if it's... If it's yeah. yeah, no, no I, I agree on the facts of this case that that wasn't a relevant consideration. But if we are going to try and look at a some form of indicative list, at least, in terms of information that's required to be understood in relation to make decisions in relation to education generally, that would need to be on it, I think. Um, and is that then very dangerous? Are we going to end up with a very long list? Um, and does that support effectively amount what... what what you've suggested, and actually this is just too vague a concept for us to be hmm. looking at, really. Well, there we are. Um, Jim, Kevin, thank you for your time today. Um, that was a really interesting discussion, certainly from my point of view, and I hope, hope the listeners will, will share that opinion. Um, I think perhaps what we can all agree on in relation to a local authority and GP is that it, it's a good start, and at least we have some kind of um, education issues that have emerged in the COP 
that will help influence things moving forward. Um, no doubt from our discussions about future litigation, perhaps the one thing we all missed is, is future litigation concerning young people's education. Um, but that perhaps is just a discussion for another day. Um, thank you both for your time. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you, Matt.